Hey, everybody, this is Al Getz. I'm here with John Boucher. And before our regular monthly episode plays, uh, we actually have some late breaking news. Uh, we recorded our podcast four days before it aired, and we just found out uh, the day before it was set to air, we got some late breaking news. So, uh, John, why don't you read uh, this press release hot off the presses? I smell the newsprint on my fingers here. Hmm. In July 2024, at the 25th anniversary of the George Tragos Luthez Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the James C. Melby Award, recognizing excellence in professional wrestling writing or historical preservation, will be awarded to Al Getz. Wow, yeah, huge news, and this is something that I actually have known about for a couple of weeks. I wasn't sure exactly when they were going to announce it publicly. I'm absolutely floored, flabbergasted, honored. Uh, when uh, Chad Olson called me and told me, I was actually speechless for one of the few times in my life. <laughs> um, but uh, I truly want to thank each and every one of our listeners, whether you've been a listener since day one, when we were, when we started up with the Arcadian Vanguard Network, or if you've just recently discovered our podcast, I want to thank you so much for listening to us. If you follow us on X, if you've purchased my books, truly thank you. And, and John, I also want to say to you, uh, without you coming on board and agreeing to do this podcast, I absolutely truly feel that we would not be where we're at today. So I want to thank you as well. Well, thank you. And congratulations. I'm I'm assuming everyone who's listening to the sound of our voices right now knows what a big deal this is. Um, but if they don't, it's a really, really, really big deal. It is. And I, I <laughs> yeah, I, I truly am honored to uh, be receiving the award. I believe I'm the 19th recipient of the award of the award. So again, thank you to all our listeners. And we now return to our regularly scheduled podcast. Hello, wrestling fans. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024 and the first edition this year of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz, and with me as always is my co-host, John Boucher. Happy New Year to you, John. Happy New Year to you as well. Happy New Year to you listeners as well. Uh, so I, I, I got to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm a little uh, out of it uh, the last couple of days. Uh, like many people, I decided to be much more dedicated to my fitness regime uh, at the beginning of the year. And for the first time in a long time, I did a hard leg day on Thursday, <laughs> and I, I I I need both hands to to get up and get to you know be for, go from a seated position to a standing position, and vice versa. Uh, I I know one good cure for muscle soreness is to uh, drink a lot of water, so I'm trying to get on that regime. Mm. But yeah, that that that's been my first few days of 2024 is trying to go really hard at the gym, uh, much more so than I have in in several years. Yeah, I've been trying to do. You know, normally I try to do like five days of just not. I'm not. I'm not hanging and bagging with the Hulkster or anything, you know. But I try to do. I do my little routine in the living room, like a half hour of like yoga or cardio or whatever. So I'm trying to get back on that. And 
instead of like gradually going back in like I should with just some little stretching, you know, I saw I'm going to go back to the, you know, 70 minute workouts. And let me tell you that first morning after that 70 minute workout that I would just bang through normally <laughs> in the mid year, I was in a lot of pain. Yeah, I, I think, cool. John, I think we're not getting any younger. No, no. <laughs> but uh, you and I had our annual uh, get together. Uh, back in December, uh, the week before Christmas, I was up in yes. New York visiting my family, but I set an evening aside and John and I met in Flushing, uh, Flushing. not far from the, uh, from the Mets stadium, as a matter of fact, to have, uh, no, uh, no. uh, to have some dinner and to, uh, see each other in person and catch up. Our annual meeting. Yeah. The, the winter meetings, if, if you will. Yes. <laughs> no, no big transactions or trades were made, though, at these no. winter meetings, unlike no. uh, baseball. <laughs> of course, that goes with what the Mets did, which is pretty much nothing uh, in this <laughs> offseason so far. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, but we're not going to be talking about baseball. And certainly, oh. even if we were, it wouldn't be about the damn Mets. We are, <laughs> however, going to look at Roy Shire's big-time wrestling territory based out of Northern California in the year 1971. This is now going to be the 13th month that we've covered one territory in 1971, so there's a lot of comparisons and compare and contrasts. We'll look at the roster, we'll run down the biggest feuds, and lots more info about the territory and how it functioned. We'll also take a closer look at two wrestlers who appeared in the territory during the year. One, a wild bull of the Pampas, and the other, a factory worker from Indiana who got into pro wrestling after learning his cousin's husband was a pro wrestler. We'll also have all our regular features, including stuff John bought me off eBay, This Month I Learned, and the third installment of the new John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, where John will face his toughest challenger to date. Oh, boy. As always, we will post a lot of the things we talk about on this episode to X, formerly known as Twitter. You can follow me at Al Getz Wrestling, A-L-G-E-T-Z Wrestling, and John at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. And for things relevant to this month's podcast, we'll use the hashtag CTTJAN24. So CTT for charting the territories, JAN for January, and 24 for 2024. Uh, John, have you gotten the chance to see the Iron Claw? I, I have seen the Iron Claw, have you? I, I did. I saw it uh, earlier this week. Uh, so w what were your thoughts about it? I thought it was 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 good. Uh, you know, I, I, as wrestling fans, uh, especially, I, I guess we can call ourselves hardcore wrestling fans. It's it's in our nature, I think, to pick apart all of this stuff yeah. for inconsistencies, inaccuracies. But you know, it is after all a you know a biopic, not a documentary, so that's to be expected. But I thought oh, it was just an enjoyable biopic, or not? I don't want to say enjoyable. Uh, <laughs> the wrong word. Um, a, a well done biopic you know and it's right. just it's horrifying to think about like the actual story being exponentially more sad and tragic than what was portrayed in the movie which it, is it really is uh <laughs> it's, it's a lot and yeah you know as as 
hardcore wrestling fans, or in our case, as historians, there's a lot to nitpick about. But you have to understand, A, it's a movie, not a documentary. And uh, because it's a movie, there has to be a main character. And clearly, mm-hmm. the main character was Kevin Von Erich. Therefore, the whole storyline and structure and narrative of the movie has to be centered around Kevin, which yep. is why they they took some of the liberties they did. I know a lot of people are talking about the horrible performance by the guy playing Ric Flair. Um but the, the one that killed me, and he was only in it very, very briefly, but the guy that portrayed Bruiser Brody was about <laughs> five foot seven and, and did no Brody mannerisms whatsoever in his seven seconds of screen time. Also, same thing goes for the um, the guy who played Terry Gordy in The Freebirds. Mm. Um, he looked like Gordy, but his entering mannerisms, he just didn't get it right at all. It, it reminded me of, uh, do you remember Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Oh, yes. The yes. heel Francis yep. Buxton. Yes. <laughs> he, he looked like Francis Buxton playing Terry Gordy because his the yeah. stuff he did in the ring was over-the-top comedic, but not in the way that Gordy's over-the-top mannerisms were. And it really goes to show like how like how hard it is to be a good wrestler well, it's, <laughs> and, uh, and do that stuff. And once you understand that – Trying to act like a professional wrestler is not how you act like a professional wrestler. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's the thing. I, I know uh, an indie wrestler uh, a few weeks ago posted something on Twitter about how anytime someone tries to copy another wrestler, they never get it right. And my response to him was, you know, that, well, the reason why there's no cocaine anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the thing that it literally yeah. gives you an otherworldly, uh, you know, experience that that cannot be replicated through method acting, which, which Dick Slater can attest to, I'm sure. <laughs> so, yeah, but the movie uh, was certainly a well-made movie. Uh, I thought the actor who played Fritz von Erich, uh, even though Fritz was was uh, they took it easy on the character of Fritz yeah, in the did. movie, but the the actor did an incredible job with the material he was given. I love him. I loved him in, uh, not to get too far off track, but, uh, was it Mind Hunter that he was in? That FBI? Oh, yeah, I love him in that too. Yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff. He was also on a show on FX called Lights Out where he played a boxer. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Bunch of other things. And, and Zach Efron, besides the obvious, he looked more like Carrie than, yeah. you know, and, and the actor that played Carrie was really, really short. And it just, yeah. uh, it just, again, these are things that, to someone who's not a wrestling fan who's going to see an art mo- an art house movie which in many aspects was what this was yep. they that doesn't matter to them uh, yeah, and, re- and uh, you know i don't want to say the movie wasn't made for wrestling fans but it certainly the target audience wasn't people like you and i hardcore mm-hmm. historians who know you know what happened on you know july 22nd 1982 at the sportatorium or whatever yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do one thing. Last thing about it before we move on, uh, I, I'd like to get in is I really hope they release a soundtrack to this on vinyl because I will buy the hell out of that. Oh a great yeah, soundtrack like Blue Easter Cult, Rush, yep, yep. Tom Petty, Mike's song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, man, when when they when they came in with the Tom Sawyer, I was I I got fired up in the theater. I was I'm like, like yes, yeah, that was awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, if you, if you haven't seen it yet, you've probably heard all the critiques and criticisms. So I, I strongly suggest turn your wrestling brain off and go to watch a drama about tragedy and, and how one family member ends up overcoming and surviving uh, just insurmountable 
tragedies befalling his family from all sides. Yeah, perfect. Yep. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, <laughs> segueing from that to my books, don't forget, you can order <laughs> Charting the Territories Almanacs worldwide on Amazon. I need to do a better job putting together this, these mm. podcasts, uh, especially going from a sad note to that. But I do have three books currently available. Uh, you can go order them on Amazon. You can also order autographed copies at chartingtheterritories.com. The first two almanacs cover Leroy McGurk's territory, and the most recent one covers the Heart of America, a.k.a. Central States Territory. I've actually just begun working on the next almanac, which will cover a different territory in the early 1970s, and I'm planning on releasing it in the spring of 2024. Uh, but now let's look at this month's stuff John bought me off eBay. And we are back to uh, recorded music. Speaking of vinyl, <laughs> yes. John bought me a 45 single, mm -hmm. The Ballad of Moondog, Maine, mm -hmm. which was performed by Ricky Ringside. So, yeah. John, do you know who Ricky Ringside really is? I believe that this was written by a, a rockabilly singer-songwriter named Gene Summers. I think he's credited on the record as Don Summers. Um it's one of those guys who never really broke on a national level, but was very popular regional hits on Texas radio in, in the 60s. In the 60s um, and 70s. Yep. And this was uh, this was used uh, as Moondog Maine's entrance music when he was a babyface in East Texas. I think this was 75 or 76. So that's a hmm. fairly early example of a wrestler coming out to yeah. music. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, Gene Summers also very briefly was a ring announcer for World Class, I think in 1981, for no more than a few oh, I had weeks. no idea. Yeah. Wow. Did you, I think one, the one sort of like brush with mainstream success, uh, sort of peripherally attached to his band was, I think, his, uh, his bass player, David Martin, from one of his bands, uh, Gene Summers and the Tom Toms, actually left to form Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. So that's a sort of interesting oh, okay. mainstream connection. And the B-side to this, the Moondog Walk, is actually another instrumental altogether called Stagger Walk um, by another band altogether called the Fabulous Capris, a soul funk band from Texas. They get two very different songs, one real country rockabilly foot stomper and the other a cool drum and bass heavy funk song but both really cool songs i like i well, like them both yeah well here's a little snippet from the ballad of moondog maine ladies and gentlemen may i have your attention please in this corner weighing in at 240 pounds from crabtree arkansas this is so there you go there's a little piece of the ballad of moon yeah. dog maine by ricky ringside I didn't know about Summers as the ring announcer. That's a cool little uh, little factoid there. Nice. 
Yeah. I Also, uh, before we move on, I want to make a little addendum to last month's eBay item. Uh, remember, those were the AWA programs, and we were going over the list of local promoters that appeared in one of them and noted that they listed someone from Los Angeles. And so we sort of questioned if that was just something they threw in to make it seem more national in scope. It turns out that was not the case. And the AWA actually made an attempt to run Southern California in September of 1969 when they ran the forum in LA. And this info comes from a friend of the podcast, uh, Steve Ogilvy. Oh, uh, yes, but Steve. Yeah, they ran September 6th, 1969. The main event was Vern Gagne versus Dick the Bruiser. Also, Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon were scheduled to face Wilbur Snyder and Cowboy Bill Watts. Lou Thez against Larry Hennig. And uh, a couple other matches as well. Hmm. So that, ran, that's, yeah. Did they try to run again in November also, like Thanksgiving-ish? I, I, I believe so. I'm not 100% sure if that show went off or um, not. Or the, okay. uh, it either did happen or it was planned and they didn't follow through. But whatever the case, I don't think it lasted more than two shows. So either yeah. one or two shows. They apparently drew terribly. <laughs> And that would have been the first wrestling card at the Forum. Oh, which wow. Is, uh, which is a, a a huge venue. Yeah. Um, I've I've been there for uh, a UFC fight and maybe even Ooh. more than one UFC fight. It's a, a much larger venue than the Olympic, hmm. uh, which seated, I think, 8,000. I think the Forum is more like 18,000. Yeah, yeah, wow. So, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, Vern had tried to expand into Southern California in 1969. And that's why there was a local promoter for LA listed in those AWA programs from 1970. And speaking of California, let's now go to Northern California. Here we go. Which is a much different climate wise. So in 1998, I moved to Northern California, Hayward, California to work for Roland Alexander. And the climate in Northern California was not what I expected at all. There was actually snow in the, in the, in the winter. Wow. Yeah. I was, I was, I mean, I wasn't expecting to be 75, you know, every day, but I certainly was not expecting it to be freezing cold regularly and (laughs) and for there to be snow. So false advertising, California. (laughs) When it comes to what to call this territory, uh, obviously a lot of people refer to it as big time wrestling. And of course, Rock Rims's book about the territory is named when it was big time, but to avoid confusion with the Sheik's big time wrestling promotion out of Detroit and the fact that East Texas, or at least the Dallas Fort Worth portion of East Texas was often referred to as big time wrestling until they changed to world class. I sort of, I just sort of have settled on Northern California parentheses, Shire. And, and there's that's so the, many. There's, yeah. And that's the problem. And John, you and I talked about this in, in December uh, <laughs> when we were talking about Tales from the Territories and how they uh, just decided to refer to Leroy McGurk's territory as tri-state wrestling yep. based on what they found on numerous websites uh, who have sort of retconned that territory into having been called tri-state, even though it was ne- that name was never used until after the split with Watts. Yeah. And the big time there's, I mean, there's, I can, I, off the top of my head, I can think of like half a dozen, you know, Hawaii also right. use big time, uh, uh, the Tony Santos, 
Uh, it was big time. Uh, yeah, just like all-star wrestling or championship wrestling. The majority of territories had one of those three yeah. names in the 70s. So <laughs> we we, uh, we have to come up with creative ways of referring to these territories yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but on chartingtheterritories.com, you can check out A Year in the Life, which is a unique data-driven look at this territory in 1971. You can also download A Year in the Life as a PDF file. And all 12 previous installments of A Year in a Life can also be downloaded as PDFs directly from the website. Uh, the first element of A Year in the Life is the territory fact sheet, which uh, looks at a map of the territory as it existed in 1971, looks at a one-week period of time to see what uh, which towns were booked on what nights, and also has some unique statistics and data points that give you a feel for how the territory functioned. Uh, one of the things we do is list the average number of wrestlers in the territory at a given time. And Shire's promotion was one of the smaller ones. On average, in 1971, there were about 12 wrestlers on the roster. In fact, of the 13 territories we've looked at so far in that year, only Joe Dusick's promotion out of Nebraska had fewer wrestlers as part of the quote-unquote regular crew. Wow. Um, so, John, anything from the fact sheet sort of stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, the 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 I guess the second thing, the first thing that jumped out at me was that it was a relatively small roster. After that, it's like, boy, it is really stacked with main eventers and packed with talent. Yes. <laughs> um, we also, in addition to looking at how many wrestlers are on the roster, we calculate how many of them were main eventers versus upper mid-carders, mid-carders, and preliminary wrestlers using our spot ratings. And on average, at a given point in time, five out of the 12 wrestlers were main eventers. Yeah. And this was the territory where the main events were often six-man tags. Mm. So that's how you get to five right there. There are yeah, yeah, three yeah, on yeah. three. A lot of times, the other wrestler in a six-man tag was someone like a Pepper Martin, who is usually a designated fall guy in a situation yeah. like that. Or on the heel side, it could be a manager like Dr. Ken Raimi yeah. or Haru Suzaki. Or at times, it's a wrestler who is slowly being de-pushed or one who is slowly being pushed into mm. the main events. So mm. their spot rating at that point in time might be just below the cutoff to be a main eventer, uh, but they're still wrestling in some main events. Mm. Also, the uh, no turns, no no heel or baby well, face. Turns. And that's that's as as we look at all these territories, that's more common in the early seventies than than a lot of people probably think. Mm. Um, obviously, the ones that have the most turns, I think Gulf Coast. Uh, yeah, uh, and Lord knows what's going to happen when I get to the ghoulish territory. <laughs> You need to go to like a like a like a like a broadside sheet. For I, you. Yeah, I, I'm going to need one of those uh, Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia uh, thumbtacks with strings and note cards to do that. But by and large, met these territories like you said with the WWWF, they would have one one angle, one big mm -hmm. turn a year, yeah. uh, and and a couple of big angles. So we just, you know, that, that was not the norm in the early 1970s. Uh, we do have records for just over 200 house shows in the territory during the year. The markets with the most house shows were San Francisco, the Sacramento Stockton market, Las Vegas, and Reno. They also ran shows in two smaller markets. One is Salinas slash Monterey, and the other was Chico slash Redding. 
Now there's one TV market adjacent to all these where we don't have any records for house shows in 1971. But, well, I will say at the time I published this, we didn't have any records for house shows in this market. But when we get to this month, I learned... We will discuss uh, some new information I found <laughs> thanks to one of our followers. But also, my This Month I Learned, John, is mm-hmm. going to contain three separate items that I learned this oh month. My. We're, we're wow. going we're going bonus size for the first time wow. ever. Oh, glad, I, glad I have a few extra cans <laughs> of seltzer here. All right. Let's take a look at the <laughs> roster for the territory. They're grouped into four categories based on their average spot rating when they were in the territory during 1971. Main eventers, upper mid-carders, mid-carders, and preliminary wrestlers. And there are also some part-time wrestlers. We'll mention some quick and interesting factoids about many of the wrestlers. So buckle up as we do our roster rundown. First uh, category, main event baby faces. And first on the list is Ray Stevens. In a joint proclamation... On uh, April 5th, 1995, uh, was declared Ray Stevens Day by the mayors of Oakland and San Francisco. Now, we, of course, know of his teams with Pat Patterson, Nick Bockwinkle, Roy Shire, and uh, maybe to a lesser extent, Jimmy Snuka. But perhaps his earliest regular tag team partner was uh, one of my favorites, Don Fargo. Mm. And they teamed as a brother act, Ray Stevens and Don Stevens, starting the fall of 1955 for Al Haft. Next up, uh, High Chief Peter Maivia. Although not blood related to the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the the, Samo- the wild Samoan's last name Anoai. Is that how we're going with that? Anoai, 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 something like that. Anoai. Although not blood related to them, uh, he was legitimately a cousin to Sidi Afi. He actually began his career in New Zealand. Uh, he was born in American Samoa, but moved to New Zealand at a relatively young age. Started his career there. His first match in the U.S. came in 1968 in Hawaii against Angelo Poffo. Huh. Uh, up next, Pepper Gomez. Uh, we just talked about him a few months ago, but one of my favorite factoids about him is that he went to James Garfield High School, the same high school popularized in Stand and Deliver. Huh. Also, Rocky Johnson. Uh, before breaking into the business, his favorite wrestler was Don Babyface Jardine, the future spoiler. Uh, I have a very rare collectible related to Rocky. I got an Ooh. advanced copy of Scott Teal's uh, biography uh-huh. of Rocky that, uh, of course, the book ended up not being officially released. And my copy was signed by Rocky himself. Wow. That, uh, this was at one of uh, uh, Barry Rose's Florida conventions. Oh, I really want to go to one of those someday. I've never been. I've always wanted to go to one. Uh, they're doing a one-day one in April mm. Mm. Uh, this year, and I will be there with copies of uh, of my books, by the way. Mm, maybe, Cheap maybe. plug. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other uh, main event babyface was Cyclone Negro. In addition to boxing, he also worked as a welder prior to his wrestling career. On the heel side, the main eventers uh, consisted of Pat Patterson. Prior to discovering wrestling, oddly enough, he had considered becoming a priest. <laughs> very interesting, considering yes. what we know about Pat. Well, he, he did grow up in a very religious family. So, yeah, it, yeah. And this is one of those things you never really thought about at the time. But uh, the special referee for the WrestleMania 11 match between Lawrence Taylor 
and Bam Bam Bigelow was Pat Patterson. And now that you and I know a lot more about pro wrestling, we can probably understand why Patterson was given that gig. Uh, mm. In that he's he's largely credited with being a main reason why the match was so good. They probably helped work it out ahead of time, yeah. and and being there in the ring could help sure. coach and guide LT along. Yep, yep. Uh, also on the main event heel side, Kinji Shibuya. Yeah, despite usually wrestling as the uh, stereotypical Japanese heel, he was actually born in Utah. He was, and and he spent virtually his entire career in North America, but he did have two tours of Japan. Hmm. And on his first one in 1967, he was part of a uh, an all-star six-man tag match. It was Shibuya, Giant Baba, and Antonio Inoki against Ricky Romero, Tarzan Tyler, and Bill Watts. Ooh, wow. Uh, up next, uh, the future superstar, Billy Graham. Uh, the superstar's MSG debut did not occur in December of 1975 against Dominic DiNucci in a wrestling match, but in October of 1966, boxing against Willis Miles. Wow. Upper mid-carter section is next. Uh, baby faces. First up is Man Mountain Mike. You know, Mike was unfortunately wrestling Mike DiBiase when Iron Mike suffered a fatal heart attack in the ring. Actually, I don't know how much of a fun fact that is, and I apologize for <laughs> fun. For a fun fact, we can go with the fact that he was reportedly discovered by Al Lovelock at a buffet. <laughs> that's, that's a little more fun. That's and that's a little that's that's <laughs> believable as well. So I was curious to see if if Man Mountain Mike had ever uh, been in the ring with Haystack Calhoun. Oh boy, they had one documented tag team match uh, together at, with them as a team, and that was a 1968 San Francisco match that saw them team up to beat Shibuya and Masa Saito. Huh. And then seven years later, they had what is uh, believed to be their one and only singles match Oof. in Rochester, New York, that saw Haystack win. Ooh, better reinforce the ring. After all <laughs> the, the, the uh, up next, Antonio, a.k.a. Tony Parisi. Again, I, I apologize in advance. That doesn't, this isn't a very uh, fun fact, but it's a fact. Um, was on the phone with Dave McKigney, the bear man, when McKigney's wife was attacked and killed by one of his bears. So he heard the whole thing on the phone. We're going to have to rename this section from fun <laughs> facts to <laughs> just, just facts. facts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tony is the grand uncle of Johnny Swinger. Oh. Now, on the heel side, the upper mid-carters, uh, and and this first one is an example of someone who came to the territory early in the year and slowly got pushed up the cards. By the end of the year, was absolutely a main eventer, but when you take his overall average for the year, he came in at the upper mid-card level, and that's Paul DeMarco. In uh, 1969-70, a, a, a heated DeMarco-Joe Scarpa feud led to the sleeper hold being temporarily banned in Georgia after DeMarco claimed to have been injured by Scarpa applying the hold too tight. Also want to note, for the first few months of his run here in 71, DeMarco was managed by Dr. Ken Ramey. Ooh. Uh, up next, Ripper Collins. Ripper Collins actually pioneered the role of the uh, the heel commentator working with, with Dick Lane in, in Los Angeles. This is like nearly a decade before Piper did it with Sully. The Mighty Brutus, who is Michael Davis, a.k.a. Bugsy McGraw. According to his book, he, he wrestled his first match against Spaceman Frank Hickey. 
And and didn't quit right there on the spot. <laughs> no, no, he's, you know, he kept he kept plugging away. As uh, Brutus was finishing up his run here, he lost a title versus hair match to Ray Stevens and was shaved, uh, had his head shaved in the middle of the ring. Oof. Um, up next, someone we will talk about later in the podcast, the great. So, John, here's a question for you. How do you pronounce, is it Pompero, Pompero, or something else? I've always gone with Pampero. Pampero. So the great Pampero, yeah. a.k.a. Yeah. Pampero Furpo. Uh, mid-card baby faces, Pepper Martin. Pepper Martin was actually one responsible for recommending Pat Patterson to Roy Shire as a possible partner for Ray Stevens, which you know, yielded one of the greatest tag teams of the 60s. And like a couple of wrestlers you've talked about before, John, Pepper was kicked out of the Navy when they found out he had lied about his age. Another one of those, huh? He was, he was just 16 when he originally enlisted. Ah. Uh, Earl Maynard. He's the one who actually discovered the original Dan Crawford, the inventor of the ladder match, uh, while sunbathing on a beach in Vancouver. He's a former champion bodybuilder, and he first mm. took up wrestling when he was stationed on the island of Cyprus for the Royal Air Force. Ooh. Up next, uh, Ricky Hunter. Ricky Hunter was born Charles Sprott. And Don Owen actually suggested the name Ricky Hunter for him because he thought Sprott sounded like a disease. <laughs> in 1973, Hunter sued Jack Briscoe for slander and harassment because oh, Briscoe called him names in the parking lot of WTCG-TV, which, of course, is the future TBS. Uh, at the time when both Georgia Championship Wrestling and All South were doing th their TV in that studio. They literally uh, taped the show back to back. So as the Georgia wrestlers were leaving, the All South wrestlers were were pulling up. Wow! And Briscoe and and Hunter had an altercation, and uh, Briscoe apparently called him names. So Hunter decided to sue and was asking for seventy five thousand dollars in damages. Wow! This is like Hogan Russo all over yeah. again. Uh, <laughs> someone someone we recently talked about on the podcast, Paul Diamond. Paul Diamond was uh, born uh, Paul Lehman. He, he chose his wrestling name because he was a fan of the show Richard Diamond, Private Detective, uh, which starred David Jansen, who would uh, later star in The Fugitive. Up next, Pat Barrett. Pat Barrett uh, claims to have dated the future, future Atta Johnson, The Rock's mother, before Rocky Johnson did. Well, imagine how things might have gone differently. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. If they got married, because uh, when I think of electrifying wrestlers, I don't think of Pat Barrett. <laughs> no. So no. I, I don't know how that would have worked. His uh, book cover is electrifying, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, after Dominic DiNucci, his uh, next most frequent tag team partners, according to wrestling data, were Timothy Gahagan mm -hmm. and Don Leo Jonathan. Oh, wow. Um, hmm. On the heel side, in the as the mid-carters, uh, Someone we'll talk about later in the podcast, Roger Kirby, also Bob Burns, and George Harris. Prior to becoming a wrestler and before joining the Army and serving for two years, uh, the baby blimp worked as a cab driver in his hometown of Dyersburg, Tennessee. Uh, Harris was reportedly semi-literate for a good part of his adult life. Mm. And when he was working for Jim Crockett Sr., Crockett hired a tutor for him and told him he would keep him employed in the family business if he learned to read and write. Mm -hmm. And after Harris's in-ring career ended, he continued to work for the Crockett family, not just with uh, the wrestling, but also in a number of capacities. 
So uh, much much like James Dudley had a job for life, uh, George Harris had a job for life uh, for the Crockett family. Yeah. Uh, there's a few preliminary wrestlers. Uh, no baby faces mm. um, as far as the regular preliminary wrestlers. But on the heel side, you have Don Carson. Prior to wrestling, uh, he served in the Navy for two years, after which he worked for a glass manufacturing company in Chattanooga. One of the things I found really interesting when looking at the spot ratings for wrestlers, Carson was a big star in Southern California around this time. He hmm. teamed up with Blassie and then feuded, uh, yeah. you know, feuded with Blassie. But when he was in Northern California, he never really broke through uh, the, the top half of the cards. Huh. You know, and typically if someone's, you know, a main eventer in one territory, they can sort of write their ticket elsewhere. Um, but his success in Southern California didn't translate to Northern California. Interesting. I wonder how much of that is like a like a personality conflict with Shire. Shire seems like he could have been like a little ornery sometimes with guys. It, it's entirely possible. And he might have yeah. been brought in just based off his reputation. Just, and then for yeah. whatever reason, it was just it, they didn't, didn't clashed. Click. Yeah, it didn't click. Good, good choice of words there. Uh, next up, Len Shelley. While working in Memphis in 1978 as Kojak, he once wrestled on the same card as Lord Darth Vader, V-A-D-O-R. So thank you, Jerry Lawler, for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, he was nicknamed Kojak. He uh, spent the first few years of his career wrestling in Canada. His first U.S. appearances were in 1970 for Leroy McGurk. Huh. Uh, and then finally, on the regular roster, is Bill White. After retiring from the ring, Bill White worked as an insurance adjuster, a scuba diving instructor, and managed a trucking company. Those are three very different jobs with yes. three very different skill sets required. Yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard the horror stories that the wrestlers uh, talk about when they worked in Puerto Rico, where the fans would sometimes throw rocks at the heels. According to Bill, not only were the rocks sold to fans outside <laughs> the venues, but the rocks actually had wrestlers' names written on them. That's fantastic. I got to say that's I, great. And I wonder if that was a marketing thing. So just like we, we look at TV ratings or YouTube engagement, if yeah. that was a way of determining how, how which wrestlers were getting over the most by how many rocks they yeah. sold. Yeah. That's that's oh that's great. Yeah, so you could pick which wrestler you hated the most and then buy a rock with their name <laughs> on it to throw at them. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, also on the site we list uh the part-timers, a couple of notable names. First up is Black Gordman. Black Gordman was actually one of Chris Candido's very first opponents, wrestling him in a Brooklyn basement early in Candido's career. That sounds like something that was in the Sports Review Wrestling magazines in the late <laughs> 70s, the Brooklyn Basement Bounce. Uh, like many wrestlers from Mexico, he has a number of relatives who also wrestled, but perhaps the most surprising relation was his one-time son-in-law, Lance Cade, who was married to Gordman's daughter, Tanya, for six years. And then also longtime preliminary uh, standout, in Northern California, Jerry Monty. Jerry Monty, uh, after his in-ring career was over, he ran a wrestling school with uh, fellow wrestler Alexis Smirnoff. I think uh, Crash Holly would probably be his most notable student. Yeah, and it's believed that over the course of his career, he only had one championship reign, which was a <laughs> five-week run with the Canadian tag team titles in 1973, teaming with John Quinn. Huh. 
So that's a, a look at the roster and a little bit of information about many of the wrestlers. Uh, if you go to A Year in the Life, we also have links to uh, articles on slam wrestling for many of these wrestlers, which will give you a much deeper look into their lives. We often talk about wrestlers taking the spot of someone who is leaving the territory. When we talked about Pepper Gomez a few months ago, we mentioned that he came back to Northern California in the summer of 1971, right as Ray Stevens was finishing up. Stevens had been the top babyface, and Pepper was pretty much taking his spot. By and large, each territory had a fixed number of spots at any given time. The exact number varied greatly from territory to territory. This territory had 12 wrestlers at any given point in time. McGurk's had like 30, had over 30. Um, and, and not only did they have a fixed number of spots, but how the promotion was booked, they typically had a, the, a set number of main event spots, mid-card spots, so on and so forth. When you have a small territory and you look at the roster and you look at wrestlers coming and going over the course of the year, you can literally see wrestlers leaving and another wrestler taking their spot at almost the same time. So I actually put together a little graphic, and I'll put this up on X. But as I mentioned, when Ray Stevens leaves in July... It was a few weeks after Pepper Gomez returned, and by the time Stevens leaves, Gomez is is back in main events taking Ray's spot. Yep. Something similar happens er- very early in the year when Ciclone Negro finishes up in January, right at the same time as when Rocky Johnson first came to the territory. And another similar situation happens in the upper mid-card section uh, when uh, Antonio Parisi leaves uh, in June it's around the same time that Pepper Martin starts getting a bigger push than he had been getting. Well, he had been sort of a, a mid-card prelim guy, but with Parisi leaving, they needed someone else to fill the upper mid-card babyface spot, and so Pepper got a little push. On the heel side, Kenji Shibuya leaves early in the year, right as Billy Graham is being pushed up the cards. Uh, the great Pepero leaves, right as Paul DeMarco comes in. And a couple of weeks after the mighty Brutus leaves is when Ripper Collins comes in. So you can literally see main eventers leaving and new main eventers being groomed in yeah. the, in their place. So it's just interesting uh, to, to see what we often talk about, about wrestlers taking someone's spot, uh, but seeing it play out graphically. Yep. It's so a great sp- visual. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of, of Firpo, uh, let's talk a little bit about him. This is, uh, of course, we all know he uh, originally came up with uh, the the catchphrase later used by Randy Savage. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like Hercules Cortez, who we talked about uh, last month, the first few years of Fairpro's wrestling career are pretty much a mystery as he was wrestling in South America, a place that has gone largely undocumented. But there is an interesting story about how he first got into wrestling. As the story goes, uh, Firpo, real name Juan Cashmanian or Cacmanian, was serving in the Argentinian army and was approached by a superior officer. The officer thought that he was related to a pro wrestler who had a similar last name and requested tickets for an upcoming show. Not wanting to disappoint his superior, Firpo drove to the local arena and purchased the tickets himself. (laughs) And apparently while he was there buying the tickets, one of the promoters saw him and was impressed by his look and physique. And as they say, the rest is history. I've never heard that story. That's amazing. 
Well, now, John, do you know the story of the shrunken head? I don't know that I do, no. All right. So uh, he often would uh, be accompanied uh, to the ring with a, with a shrunken head that he would sometimes yeah. sometimes would talk to him. Yeah. Um, but in Ecuador, he, uh, as the story goes, he acquired a legitimate shrunken head of an actual person that which was given to him by an Ecuadorian tribal leader in acknowledgement of the young wrestler's skills. Oh, I remember the story now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is great. And he, named, <laughs> and he named the head Chimu in honor of the tribe's god of good luck. <laughs> now, you did some – yeah, you did some research and you found some documents on Ancestry.com. We will post uh, some or all of these uh, to yeah. X. What's interesting is his earliest documented appearance in the U.S. was August 22nd. Um, but his first entrance into the country was August 13th. Yeah. And within a couple of weeks, he was the Texas heavyweight champion. Yeah. yeah. So that was a uh, – he, he must have had a very successful uh, few years in South America uh, to have uh, been given such a strong push right out the gate in the U.S. I think it was when uh, – is he touring Mexico, I think, in 57 or so? I yes, think he's he in Mexico. He's, yeah. he, he first comes to Mexico and then goes into the U.S. Yeah, I think that he got he got the he got the uh, the word from uh, was it Salvador Luteroth and El Santo both talked him up to uh, Morris Siegel, who you know immediately you know he's like I said within within two weeks he's dethroning Don Leo Jonathan who's a foot taller than him. <laughs> yeah, in the ensuing weeks he faced a veritable who's who of wrestling. Uh, you mentioned El Santo; that's one of the wrestlers he faced uh, in his first few weeks in Texas, but also Gory Guerrero. Pepper Gomez and uh, Rip Rogers, who was uh, the future Eddie Graham and wow. not not Seymour Indiana's second most famous celebrity <laughs> after John Mellencamp. Yeah, I think he's like working mostly as, as Ivan the Terrible at this time, right? This is before. That is correct. And that's a yeah. name he used for a few years when he worked for McGurk in 59 and 60. He was still Ivan the Terrible. But he also used another name in Indiana, John. And what was that? Oh, El Chivo. And that literally translates to? The goat. The goat. <laughs> of course, at that time, goat did not mean greatest of all time. <laughs> no. It wasn't the acronym it is today. It was more literally that he was a, uh, a goat-like creature. Yes. <laughs> um, when he did work for McGurk as Ivan the Terrible, he feuded with the great Bolo, and he also teamed up a few times with a rookie named Danny Hodge. He then went to the Northeast in February 1960 and wrestled for Capital Sports, which is where he first took on his most famous ring name. Yeah, he's really like, uh, yeah, and he's did really well in the Northeast, like singles and tagging with, like you said, like Eddie Graham, Dr. Jerry Graham, Killer Kowalski, uh, the great Antonio. I've, I've got a great promo shot of Antonio and Furpo and like there are some those are some hairy dudes yeah and they had a they had a great run in the northeast and they played a very significant role in like the ascension of, of young Bruno San Martino who was tagging with uh Rocca and I think Bruno's first MSG main event was a tag match with Rocca against Furpo and Antonio 
And Rocco was someone Furpo had looked up to a lot, uh, even before he came to the States, uh, I believe, mm. as, a, as another uh, native of South America who, who got fame and fortune as a wrestler in the U.S. So I know yeah. Furpo was, was honored and privileged to be able to work with Rocco uh, in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Uh, you did find footage from his career dating as far back as the early 1960s. So yeah. uh, we're going to put a playlist up on our YouTube channel. Uh, John, tell us a little bit about what's on this playlist. Like you said, I've got something from 6062-ish with uh, Furpo tagging with Skull Murphy against Rocca and Eduardo Campatier. Um, this is, I think, the only footage uh, I've seen of him from before that stomach surgery he had in the late 60s. So he takes some bumps here that you won't see him taking later on, like some flying head scissors from Rocca or uh carpentier jumping on his stomach don't get me wrong these aren't like crazy crazy bumps or anything but this is stuff he would not be doing 10 years later um there's him and a young jimmy valiant billed as a uh, gary valen here i think this is like 68 69 great great promo from furpa before the match um isn't much of a match basically a squash but you really get a sense of why Furpo was such a draw for 30 years when you watch something like this just like an amazing look charisma is off the charts you could you know you could yeah he's technically limited in the ring but that's almost besides the point because you wouldn't want a guy who looked like this to be a Ray Stevens clone um you'd want him to work like he does here uh there's a bunch of film from the Olympic Auditorium silent stuff um, one of my favorite ones is him against Ernie Ladd. Very quick, but I love it. Um, neither Furpro nor Ladd are known for their technical wrestling wizardry. But what happens in this match is just what I would consider great, you know, quote unquote, working. You have Ernie Ladd, legitimately an entire foot taller than Furpo, selling for him believably, making Furpo look 10 times stronger than he is. This is what like wrestling is all about. It's, it's Great. And you actually do see some great like go behinds and waist locks and hammer locks from these two guys, which is very surprising to see here. Well, that's, um, like, that that's like a lot of times when there's a UFC fight between two guys known for their brawling, it ends up not being a brawl yeah, because exactly. each one doesn't want to go into the other's comfort zone. <laughs> so yeah. I wonder if that's that was, you know, something that the two of them talked about, said they're expecting us to do this. So let's go out and do, you know, yeah. give them something that they've never seen from us. Yeah. And we get to see Furpo win with his uh, claw hold, El Garfio, I think he called it. Uh, and there's some stuff with the Sheik. Those are just, those are just flat out brawls. Sheik attacking people at ringside, punching, choking, foreign objects, chair shots, locker room. No go um, behind waist locks from the no, Sheik? No, no. <laughs> but you can see, like, while they're whether you drew so well and how it could eventually burn out a territory. <laughs> um, uh, John Tolos, another quick clip from the LA Olympic. Nothing crazy here. Get a run in from a young Dino Bravo at the end. That's kind of cool. Oh, there's a match, Von Raschke, uh, AWA 75. Match is kind of a nothing brawl, but before the match, we get a great promo with Furpo bending a steel bar <sighs> in his mouth. Um, Absolutely fantastic stuff. And just another uh, quick promo from Detroit TV. Just and my God, he's his promos are just it's almost like I, I don't want to compare him to Dusty. He's not at all like Dusty, but in the same way that if you transcribe Dusty's promos or Furpo's promos, they probably make zero sense. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> like, but when what he's saying, you're buying 100 percent of what he's saying, uh, you know, and it's totally into it. It's like the same sort of feel in, in the promos. And, and just like we were talking about earlier, talking about the Iron Claw, you can't replicate these things nowadays uh, for whatever reason. The wrestlers of today can't do this. No, no. And I don't know why, other than my uh, my obvious semi joke answer of co- cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> but I had yeah. But uh, you know, we also have some pictures from your personal collection that we'll put up on X, as well as an article from the July 1972 issue of Wrestling Review, written by none other than George Napolitano. Yeah, usually behind the lens. This time he's behind the typewriter. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, post-wrestling, uh, he worked for the post office in San Jose, where he worked for the bulk mail department. Now, John, do you know the significance of the branch he worked at as it pertains to wrestling? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, it's fascinating that for a period of about 20 years, like, Furpo was, you know, likely involved in processing orders of the Wrestling Observer. Yes. So, <laughs> so this was the branch that that Dave Meltzer <laughs> dropped off his newsletters uh, yeah. to be mailed out. And as I mentioned, Furpo worked in the bulk mail department. Yeah. So it is very possible that the newsletters I used to get in the mail in the uh, in the mid to late 90s ha- yeah. had not only been written by Dave Meltzer, but had been handled by the wild bull of the Papas. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Like, I really... Speaking of like this era, modern era versus the territorial era, I'll sometimes think of territorial wrestlers and imagine how they'd fit in or not fit in into a modern wrestling promotion. But I don't often think of them in terms of marketing. But I think like Pampero Furpa would have been a gold mine. Like the guy had catchphrases coming out the wazoo. Yeah. He had his little shrunken head guy. He makes stuffed animals out of that. Yeah. You got the foam steel bars that kids can bend in there. It's so many, so many things to do with this guy. It's it's just great. Yeah, just just incredible talent and just believable and was presented in such a way that his opponents knew, you know, how to work with him to to make it even more believable that he yeah. was crazy and wild and and strong and strong Especially- like bull. Yeah, especially when you consider, like, I think it was, like, 68 in Hawaii, where he had the perforated intestine, where he had, like, life-saving surgery, you know, and after then, he was like, every match, don't hit me in the stomach, I'll die. Yeah. You know, so you're immediately limited in what you can do with this guy, but he still made it work, you know? But, yeah, he still got a, a many years uh, in the ring yeah. after that. Now, yeah. for all the talk, talk about what a tough guy he was uh, in the ring, how he was presented, uh, he apparently was a sweetheart when it came to his family. So I want, oh, to cl- yeah. I want to close our discussion of him with uh, just two little anecdotes. Um, wrestling uh, afforded him the ability to bring his family to mm-hmm. America. And later in life, when he was living in an assisted living facility, his daughter would pick him up once a week and bring him to her home for a visit. Oh. But they always made one other stop on the way to Costco so he could get a hot dog. <laughs> Oh boy! I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to picture, you know, picture oh, the, the visual so, so of that. <laughs> so sweet. Yeah, there is. I love listening to adult children of wrestlers from this era, especially if those wrestlers worked as heels at some point. And uh, his daughter Mary, I think, was on an episode of the 605, like the tribute to him after he passed away. Highly recommend that episode. She gives such great insight into him as a human being, a lot of stories like this. And it's very, very touching to listen to. And she's very articulate. Yeah. And one uh, of his sons, I believe, runs an X account uh, uh, named, named for him, showing a lot of the historical documents. 
Oh, cool. And stuff. So, yeah, uh, there's just so much uh, out there about Furpo. So if you want to watch the YouTube playlist, go to our YouTube channel. And, of course, we'll post some pictures and some of the other documents and articles we've talked about about Furpo. Now, in previous months, John, not only did we cover one or two wrestlers in more detail on this podcast, but our good friend David Gibb would write a profile on one of them uh, as part of a year in the life. But starting this year, we changed it up. And David now is going to write profiles on the territory itself, focusing on the years 1971 through 1973. Uh, Much like uh, my books cover a three-year period, that's the same goal with these profiles. So what he does, uh, he sort of has it four little sections. One is an introduction to the territory, and in this case, talking about the uh, the very one-sided wrestling war between Roy Shire and Joe uh, Mankiewicz uh, in San Francisco when Shire originally wanted to buy in to the existing territory, and Joe told him, thanks, but no, 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 no. thanks. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then just sort of recaps what happens uh, each year from 1971 through 1973. And, of course, as 1973 closes, uh, um, Moondog Maine – uh, had yeah. become the uh, the U.S. heavyweight champion. What's interesting, I was going through some attendance figures for California. Um, Patterson was a babyface uh, by 73. So Patterson was defending the U.S. title against Moondog Maine. They had three bouts at the Cow Palace, and each con- each consecutive match had, a- had more fans in attendance, mm, which wow. is usually not how it works. Yeah, no, no. Usually the first one draws the biggest house, but if it draws well enough – they figure they can squeeze a couple more above average gates out of it and run, and that's how they run rematches. But here, each, the second one drew more than the first and the third one drew more than the second. Wow. Uh, so check out that profile by David Gibb. And if you like David's writing, be sure to visit his site, aceyourcomeback.com, where he has a book for sale, uh, but also several short stories, uh, that are, um, free on the website. Uh, there's a whole lot more to A Year in the Life. Uh, if you don't check them out regularly, give it a chance. I know there's charts and graphs, and that scares people, and there's statistics and numbers <laughs> and data. I get it. But if you haven't seen it, at least take a look at it. And if you do and it's not your cup of tea, then uh, you, I won't make you keep looking at them. But there's just <laughs> there's just so much info there presented in, in a unique way. Um, we look at the biggest feuds in the territory, and the biggest one for 1971 – was the continuation of the feud between Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. And they had actually been having singles matches in the territory dating back to 1969. Yeah. In 1970, they had five singles bats at the Cow Palace, which culminated with Stevens winning a Texas death match as the blow-off. But as you get into 1971, it's still working its way through the other markets. Yeah. And on our website, you can see how it plays out in both Las Vegas and in Reno. Yeah, what's really jumped out at me how with the feuds, I mean, we're used to feuds running in different markets, but more often than not, even if they have different narratives, you know, in the different markets, they're usually running concurrently. But that's not the case here. You'll have Patterson like running in Vegas for three months and then a month later that Patterson feud starts up in Reno and then another feud will play out, play out in San Francisco, wrap up there and then start in San Jose. So it's, it's really interesting. Uh, yeah, and this is just one of those things that it's what I would love to know is how the TV worked. Of course, we know yeah. they had a studio yeah. show out of San Francisco. Was that 
repurposed and bicycled around? Or did they have separate shows for some of these markets? I believe Las Vegas at times seems to have a slightly different lineage of of the U.S. heavyweight title, which leads me to believe that they might have had their own TV. But that Mm. also, I don't quite know how that would have worked since they didn't run Vegas every week. And yeah. that town is so far away from the rest of the territory, yeah. it would make no sense to bring people in to do a TV taping there. Yeah. So that's just one of those questions that we probably will never get the answer to. We slowly but surely are learning things about some of these territories and how many different TV shows they had. As a matter of fact, this isn't one of my this month's I learns, but this month I did learn Baton Rouge at a time from McGurk had its own TV. Hmm. That was taped at Independence Arena, which was where they ran house shows. So it was probably, you know, showing matches from the uh, from the house shows. Oh yeah, not studio. T- oh, interesting. And which leads me to which leads me to wonder if that Baton Rouge tape was cycled through other towns in Louisiana, or if the other markets had their own TVs as well. Hmm. Um, we also have attendance data on the site. Uh, we have. Attendance figures for just over half of these shows at the Cow Palace, most of the shows in Sacramento, and about 70% of the cards held in Vegas. So on the site, we list the average attendance for each city, as well as the largest crowd in each. And um, also a link to house show results and lineups. Um, we have been collaborating with uh, my friend Chris Knights, who is an editor for WrestlingData.com. I've been sharing my work, and he also has been sharing his research with me as well. So we're sort of compiling the most uh, complete and accurate list of house show lineups and results on WrestlingData.com. So if you're you're really interested in knowing the you know, the specific results from all of these cards or from as many cards as we have results for, that's the site to go to. Uh, so if you ever want to bone up on your territorial knowledge, be sure to check out WrestlingData.com and ChartingTheTerritories.com. And speaking of territorial knowledge, John. Uh-oh. It's, it's time. time. It's time. All right, John, you oh, are boy. you are undefeated. You are two and zero. Oh. Oh, man. Are you ready for your next challenger? I'm ready. I'm ready, baby. Bring it on. All right. Before we introduce them, I have a confession to make. Oh, jeez. While we were having dinner together over the holidays, I secretly had a cleaning crew go to your place and thoroughly clean and disinfect the isolation chamber. I appreciate that. So there shouldn't be any funky smells this month. (laughs) No smells, no stains, nothing unless, yeah. Now, with that that out of the way, let's meet this month's challenger. My name is Chris Zellner, and I challenge John Boucher to around the Gordon Soli's Championship Wrestling Trivia. All right, John, your opponent this month is Chris Zellner. Chris, tell oh, us. My third opponent. My <laughs> third opponent. You gave me Chris Zellner. My third opponent, Zellner. Oh, you're, geez. you're moving up the cards, man. I'm slow, slow. You got a slow push. <laughs> no, slow push. I, no. I, as the promoter, as the promoter and booker of this podcast, I see potential in you, and I'm <laughs> putting the rocket, strapping the rocket, strapping okay. the rocket to you. So, okay. 
I think most of our listeners are, are quite familiar with Chris Zelder, but yes. uh, just in case, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, of course. I'm the host of Between the Sheets podcast. My co-host David Bixenspan, and we've been going strong for over eight years now, going to nine years. So uh, that's good. Uh, Exile on Bad Street is the podcast I've done on my solo efforts. Haven't been doing that a lot lately due to uh, a lot of stuff going on in my personal life, but uh, hopefully maybe one day get back going on that. Al's been a guest on both uh, shows, so he he's a veteran of my podcast. Um, started watching wrestling as a child. I mean, my earliest wrestling memory is like when I was five years old, 1984, but I was going to wrestling when I was a baby. Of course, I don't remember that, but of course, growing up in Georgia, you know, Crockett, Jim Crockett promotions was what I grew up with. So that is, uh, you know, my promotion, a home promotion, WCW, of course, spawning from that. Um, also, being a kid in Atlanta, Joe Pettacino was a major influence with uh, his wrestling block. So I got to see wrestling from all over the world. So Mid-South, Memphis, you know, two of my all-time favorite territories, world-class, what have you. So I was a well-rounded wrestling fan as a kid. So um, And I love wrestling magazines, you know, collecting them in that era. So I was just a hardcore wrestling fan from the jump. So, uh, so yeah, so that's kind of my dearth of knowledge there is the 80s and of course uh if you want to see some of my wrestling opinions and what have you uh, and other things too because i'm of course i'm a hardcore sports fan and everything follow me on twitter x whatever you want to call it at chris zellner k-r-k-r-i-s-z-e-l-l-n-e-r and of course the between the sheet podcast uh account is at bt sheets pod so uh go there and uh yeah that's all i got for right now Chris Zellner, who has been going to wrestling shows since he was a baby. John, yeah. how do you feel? Well, I didn't. I, I haven't been going to wrestling shows since I was a baby. Yeah, you know, but I've I've been I've been, you know, I've I, I've been watching wrestling since eight years old. So that's that's not a baby, but it's you know prepubescent. Uh, <sighs> okay, let's do this. All right, Chris, uh, we're going to go over the rules for both you and John and for our listeners as a recap. Both Chris and John will have 20 seconds to answer each question. I will ask Chris all four questions first while John is in the isolation chamber that we built in his home. Oh, Chris, my goodness. <laughs> Chris can ask for a hint for one of the first three questions. You must ask for the hint at the time the question is asked. The 22nd clock will be stopped while the hint is given. And you cannot ask for a hint for the fourth question. But if you do ask for a hint, John will automatically be given the same hint for the same question and be given a hint for the fourth question. The correct answer to each question is what's written on the actual game card, regardless of if we believe it's actually right or not. Uh, there have been a few mistakes with some of these cards, but that's... I'm not that's, surprised by that. That's, that's the Seinfeld the Moops rule. Uh, and as a reminder, the game was released in 1987. Uh, if, and I wanted this game as a kid, never got it. Well, you've got a chance to play, so we'll, we'll see. Hey. And, uh, if both you and John answer the same number of questions correctly, there will be a bonus question... For a tiebreaker. All right. John, Chris is ready to go, which means I need you to step into your uh, freshly cleaned and sanitized isolation chamber. Oh, 
Ooh, smells like Windex in here. Great. Let's go. All right. John is safely sequestered in the isolation chamber. So, Chris, are you ready to play Gordon Soli's championship wrestling trivia? Let's do it. All right. Question number one. Who won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in 1948? Lutez. That is correct. And I technically want to say it's based on how you just how you uh, interpret the NWA. Uh, He technically won the Alliance Championship. He was awarded it in 1949. But in 1948, he won the Association's World Heavyweight title from Wild Bill Longson. But you since you answered correctly with what's on the card, that is correct. So question number two, what Russian satellite did one of the Monroe brothers adopt as a name? Sputnik. That is correct. Chris Zellner is two for two. And we move on to question number three. Name the team who won the Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Tag Team Championship and also competed in Russell Rock 86. The Row Warriors. That is correct. Three for three. We go on to question number four. Reminder, you cannot ask for a hint for this question. And this is a true-false question. True or false? Wrestling has never been held at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. False. That is correct. Chris has gone Four for four for the first time in the three months we have been doing this. The challenger has gotten all four questions correctly. So I'm going to go ahead and signal John to come out of the isolation chamber and we will see if he can keep up with Chris. Okay, John is out of the isolation chamber and ready to go. John, this month's challenger, Chris Zellner, answered all four questions correctly. You don't say (laughs) which means that in order for you to have a chance at victory this month you must also answer all four correctly at which point the bonus round will determine a winner chris did not use any hints so you will not be getting any hints okay john are you ready yeah yeah yeah, yeah, ready question number one who won the nwa world heavyweight championship in 1948 Uh, uh, Luthez? Luthez Luthez is correct. Okay. And just like I said to Chris, this one I have an issue with. He was awarded the National Wrestling Alliance world title in 1949. In 1948, he won the National Wrestling Association world Uh, title from Wild Bill Longson. I got, yeah. You got it right. A little hung up up in my head on that one. Right. (laughs) On to question number two. What Russian satellite did one of the Monroe brothers adopt as a name? Oh, that would be Sputnik. Sputnik is correct. Okay. Question number three. Name the team who won the Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Tag Team Championship and also competed in Wrestle Rock 86. Oh, dear. 
seconds. Ten seconds. I'll get the Road Warriors. With two and a half seconds left, John guesses the Road Warriors. And John, you are correct. Oh, boy. Three for three with one question left. John, if you get this right, we will move on to the bonus round. Question number four is a true or false question. Oh, Jesus. True or false. Wrestling has never been held at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. I'm going to go false. That is correct. The Great American Bash Tour of 1986 Mm -hmm. saw them have one card at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. All right. John got four right. Chris got four right. That means it's time for the tiebreaker and the bonus question. So here are the rules. You will each have 15 seconds to answer the bonus question. The correct answer is a whole number greater than zero. Chris will be asked the question first, and John will then choose if he thinks the correct answer is higher or lower than the answer Chris gave. If John's correct, he wins. And if not, Chris wins. So Chris, here is the question. According to the July 13th, 1998 edition of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, (laughs) what was the paid attendance when Goldberg beat Hulk Hogan at the Georgia Dome? Paid attendance. So not the attendance that was claimed or the actual paid paid attendance. attendance. Five seconds. 38,150. 38,150 is Chris's guess. John, do you think that the paid attendance for the Goldberg-Hogan edition of Nitro at the Georgia Dome in July 1998 was higher or lower than 38,150? Paid, I'll go go lower. According to Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, the paid attendance was 36,506, which is lower. John, you beat Chris Zellner. Oh, boy. Holy shit. (laughs) Oh, um, I'm sweating, too. (laughs) Jesus. Man. Wow. All right. Congratulations, John. But you know what that means? Next month's opponent... (laughs) It's going to have to be a step up from Chris frickin' Zellner. Oh, man. Do I, get a, uh, do, I, do I get a month off? Can I go back to developmental or something? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Send me down to NXT Ooh. or something. Or, oh, uh, man. I'm pumped now. Uh, I need to. I think I, the vein on my, <laughs> on my forehead is going to knock off my headphones and my glasses. Oh, oh. man. All right. Congratulations. <laughs> Congrats, John. Really, I'm uh, I, uh, I'm impressed. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Congrats to Zellner too. Great, great, great job, Chris. You know, I think we're going to need to uh, turn things down a notch. I think we're going to need to uh, slow yeah. things down and sort of get everybody back whew, to a resting heart rate level. Yeah. Um, we talked about Pampero Furpo, but we also want to talk a little bit about another wrestler who worked in Northern California in 1971, and that is Roger Kirby. Yeah. So Kirby uh, was born Willis Kirby in 1939 in Muncie, Indiana. He was a Golden Gloves boxer who had a cousin, Dennis Hall, in mm-hmm. pro wrestling. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, John, you found some early photos of Kirby, one from his high school yearbook and one from a Golden's <laughs> Glove, a Golden Gloves meet in 1959. We'll of course put those up on X. Yep. It's uh interesting high school as far as athletics from Kirby. There's some intramural basketball, you know, outside of the school, the Golden Gloves boxing thing you mentioned. Um He's also a member of the high school drama club and was involved in a number of theater productions over the years. And <laughs> I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but one of the ar- insults, arguments you heal from wrestling purists is about modern wrestling. You know, what happened to all the tough guys? It's like the theater kids took over wrestling. And I'm guilty of this myself. I'm a grumpy old man. Right. I have some bad news for all of us grumpy old men, <laughs> grumpy old wrestling fans. If we go through the high school yearbooks from these years, you're going to see a lot more wrestlers involved in drama club theater doing school plays than you would think. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of them are on the football team. Some like Dusty Rose would do both. Uh, you know, I, I bet Dusty was even in the typing pool and somehow talked his way into the daughters of the American revolution. But <laughs> for a lot of these guys, like the theater club totally makes sense. Like a guy like Roger, like a heel, like Roger Kirby, you know, that's, that's, it is, you know, it's entertainment. Like you don't want to, that was always there. It wasn't, you know, as, marketed as such but that element was always always there you know yeah uh, kirby was uh he was uh, he did a nature boy gimmick for a while but a lot of times he's just presented as a no-nonsense uh tough guy uh not not necessarily flashy but all around solid um he was one of the few men to win the world junior heavyweight championship in the ring from danny hodge uh taking the title from him earlier in 1971 and hodge himself called Kirby a first-class wrestler. Yeah. He, it's, oh man, he really is like uh, like a wrestler's wrestler. You know what I mean? Like he's not the kind of guy, I don't think we'll see him in the Observer Hall of Fame or anything like that. But you have everybody from like Bob Geigel to Danny Hodge singing your praises saying this guy was as good as a worker as anyone in the country. This guy should have made way more money than he did. You know, and you don't have Bill Watts singing the praises of a lot of guys who are like, you know, barely 5'10", 220 pounds. So it says, that says so much about him as a, as a, as a wrestler, you know? Yeah. And uh, now after he dropped the World Junior Heavyweight title to Ramon Torres, he finished up his run with McGurk and went here to Northern California. But this wasn't the first time Kirby had worked for Shire. In fact, the two went way back. Their first interaction was before... <laughs> Kirby yeah. was a pro wrestler. So, John, <laughs> yeah. do, do you know this story? From your uh, reaction, I, I think that you do. Yeah, his first like brush with, with wrestling in general came when he was, I think, a senior in high school. Um, he was in the crowd watching a match with the uh, the Shire brothers, which are Roy, Roy Shire and Ray Stevens, wrestling as brothers, Ray Shire. Um, and they were double teaming a baby face. And Kirby, you know, not obviously not smart to the business, runs to the ring and attempt to save the baby face, I think was... Bobby Manikoff, I think, and Shire and Stevens, like, put the boots to him, you know, and he kicks him out of the ring, lands on the floor, uh, <laughs> his ears all jacked up. Uh, Kirby goes home and tells his mom about what happened, and then his mom tells him that his cousin is actually married to a wrestler, Dennis, with a cowboy, Dennis yeah, Hall. Yeah, cowboy Dennis Hall. Begins training with him, like, the next week, you know? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a great story about his entry into professional wrestling. Uh, you you curated some YouTube footage of Kirby. And of course, uh, just like we did for Furpo, we are posting a playlist to our YouTube channel. So uh, what do you got on uh, on Roger Kirby? 
Oh, so much, so much good Kirby stuff. There's a, so we talked about it, a little Haystack Calhoun earlier. You got a Billy Graham and Roger Kirby in a handicap match <laughs> from the Cow Palace right around this time, actually, January 72, I think. Oh my God, Billy Graham is jacked. And Roger Kirby, I got to say, looks pretty damn jacked here as well. I wonder if he was dipping into Billy's, <laughs> Billy's <supply>. stash. <laughs> um, there's a tag match from Florida. Uh, Dick Slater, Johnny Weaver against Kirby and Harley Race from the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. Um, this is you can really see what Kirby was like in this clip. It looks like a million bucks, bleach blonde, tan, great psychology, great selling, great grumper, grumper, bumper. Grumper. Rather, he's a great grumper too. Uh, <laughs> takes a big bump in the corner to the outside after the match goes a double DQ. Um, you know he looks great. Um, I got some. Film footage from uh, St. Louis wrestling at the chase from 76, which like, oh, my God, the talent in the ring in this match, like Terry Funk, Gene Kaniski, Pat O'Connor, special ref and uh, Bob Backlund, future WWF champ and Roger Kirby. And looking looking at these teams, you know, you sort of know what Roger Roger's role is going to be. <laughs> He's going to be the one doing the selling, taking the big bumps. He gets drop kicked over the top rope, atomic drop on the floor. Surprisingly, Roger does not get his shoulders pinned. Kaniski rolls up uh, Terry Funk in a small package while Terry Funk is doing like a spinning toehold. Gets a quick three count. Really cool finish, I thought. And there's a big brawl after the match with Funk getting busted open on the ring post. A kind of a crazy brawl for the more typically sedate St. Louis TV audience. Um, Thunderbolt Patterson and Billy Robinson versus Kirby and Carl Von Snyder from Florida. 76. Uh, I got to say Thunderbolt and Billy Robinson is a hell of a tag team. Um, <laughs> this clip is basically the Billy Robinson show. Not much Kirby action going on here. Uh, if you need one match to watch from all these to see, get a feel of how good Roger Kirby was this match, uh, AWA match from 1979, probably be the match, even though he's in like the latter third of his career here, he's doing all the heavy lifting here. Uh, he's teaming with, uh, Madman Mitchell, better known as a stomper guy, Mitchell, Jerry Valiant. Um, he's doing all the heavy lifting, taking the big bumps, huge backdrops. And he throws like a gorgeous looking drop kick at one point. I had no idea Roger Kirby yeah. had these and, Rocky Johnson drop kicks. In uh, right did you mention their opponents for this match? Oh, uh, Jumbo Saruta and Tenru. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way. <laughs> by the way, I may have glazed over that. Um, I love, love, love Roger Kirby in this tag team role. He's really good at it psychology and his work is just fantastic um uh, kevin von eric uh as we mentioned earlier kevin von eric versus roger kirby st louis 79 um larry Matisic. this is a thing that they would put over with kirby that he holds the world record for the leg press at 2800 pounds which a leg press was not something that was tracked in the same way <laughs> the bench press right. was tracked. and i don't think roger kirby was pushing anywhere close there's a, there's a video of ronnie coleman doing 2300 which if you watch that <laughs> You'll, it'll it'll convince you that uh, you know Kirby was not doing anything close to that. Um, it's you know, this is more it is Kirby selling for Kevin, putting him over. Let's letting Kevin show off what he can do here. They go to the time limit with Kevin having Kirby in the claw hole. The time runs out. Kevin doesn't get his hand raised, but Kirby definitely elevated Kevin in the eyes of the audience here. Um, a Central States tag match is really nothing to it. Uh, Terry Terry. Ted and Jerry Oates, Kirby and Les Thornton. 
not very exciting. A good undercard tag team match on a house show. Just a by by the book kind of cookie cutter ten minute tag match here, but still still fun to watch. Um, and lastly, <laughs> I thought this was fun. It's a uh, Roger Kirby and Terry Gibbs versus Ricky Steamboat and C.D. Afi from the first ever debut episode of the WWF Superstars of Wrestling. So it's kind of cool seeing him there yeah. in that role. That was pretty much the end of his entering career. He also worked as a referee for the yeah. WWF for a little while. Yeah. Uh, now, he's probably best known for his numerous stints in the heart of America, central mm-hmm. states. Uh, in 1973, when they were building up Harley Race to win the world title from Dory Jr., Kirby had a brief uh, heel versus heel feud with Harley. And while it didn't directly lead to a babyface turn for Harley, it sort of planted the seeds for him to be positioned as a face in Heart of America after uh, that that brief title run for him in 1973. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, they had a little heel versus heel thing uh, just to sort of get the fans perhaps, you know, used to uh, sympathizing with Harley, who had been the top heel for, you know, a good two and a half years straight at that point in time. Uh, Kirby was also profiled in Greg Oliver and Steven Johnson's book, The Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Heels. Uh, is there anything mm-hmm. from that profile uh, that you that, that stood out to you? He talks about wrestling Tom Jones, uh, you know, and every night he says every night there wasn't a person in the building that didn't believe that Tom Jones could beat me. But they would always work out a finish where Kirby, you know walked out getting his hand raised, you know? Yeah. Uh, You know, and I think that in in your book, I think that particular feud shows up as like the the number 15 biggest feud of 1971 in the territory with two other of Kirby's feuds, Danny Hodge and Ramon Torres. Yeah, Kirby Kirby had had a nice little run for Leroy, but talking about the matches with Tom Jones in that profile, uh, Kirby is also quoted as saying in some of the towns, this is probably more in the ones in Mississippi and parts of Louisiana, uh, Kirby, according to Kirby, the crowd consisted of 100 white fans and 2000 black fans. Yeah. 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 So they, uh, not only are the fans you know, believing that Jones is, is going to win, but look at the racial makeup, it, it made probably made for a wild, uh, a raucous audience. And it actually yeah. reminded me of a show uh, my friend Steve Carino was telling me about. Uh, he worked an indie show in Philadelphia in the late 90s. And he said every single match was a white heel against a black baby face. Oh, and and it was and it was pretty much unofficially called kill whiting it because the baby <laughs> the baby faces won every match. <laughs> I just oh, man, I love the, the, I had so much fun watching all of these uh matches of, of kirby it's like he's like ah oh, like he was never gonna be nwa world champion or anything but he's just so perfect in that role as a top heel and or champion in many a territory or as like a heater for a guy like harley race uh or where i think he does his best work as as like the worker the bump taker psychology guy in a heel you know, tag team, not even try to guess how many championship tag teams he was in, but he's tagging everybody from like Harley Race to Beauregard to David Schultz to J.J. Dillon, like a perfect guy for that tag team role yeah. or either as a top or second tier heel in a regional promotion. And that type of wrestler, we don't always see them, you know, getting their flowers, so to speak, aside from their peers. And that's one of the reasons we really, really I love talking about and, and researching guys like Roger Kirby. It it reminds me a lot of Killer Carl Cox. It's one of those he's mm-hmm. your favorite wrestler's favorite wrestler yep. type of deal. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and everyone, everyone that, that has worked, had worked with Kirby that, that has, you know, gone on record has nothing but high praise for Kirby. And not only that, you know, for his entering stuff, but you also have never heard anything negative about him as far as, you know, Willis Kirby, the, the real person behind yeah. Roger Kirby. Yeah, both Kirby and uh, Furpo. This may be a this may be a first for us where we have like two yeah, guys if, who are generally well liked. If know? it wasn't for your the the two negative fact fun facts you had about people, <laughs> this would this could have been the feel good episode of of, of the year. <laughs> Instead, it's very special. Instead, it's a yes. Well, and of course, we started off talking about the Iron Claw, so it can't be all that yeah. all that happy. But uh, it was informative, and uh, that about wraps things up for this month. So uh, as I mentioned, over the last 13 months, we've covered territories both big and small. Next month on the podcast, John, we're going to look at a territory that by one measure is probably considered the smallest territory in the U.S. and Canada, but by a different measure, it may be considered the biggest. John, I Uh hope you will meet me there next month as we continue to chart the territories. Oh, you gave it away. Now, each and every month, John and I learn new things as we do research for this podcast. And each and every month, we each name one of those things, although this month I'm going to name three. But uh, it's a segment we call This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? So, I have a lot of wrestling books. Um, and I must admit, with a lot of them, I don't read them as soon as I buy them. They go into a big, big, Same. a big to read pile that I plow through them when I can. Um, there are some that I use more for reference than as opposed to reading cover to cover, you know, and that was the case with the, when it was big time, the rock rims book, fantastic book about a hundred years of uh, Northern California wrestling history, which I finally read over Christmas break, as opposed to just diving in for reference stuff here and there. So this month I learned that while working in Northern California, Frankie Kane, the great Mephisto. Oh, I know what's coming. Attracted the attention of an interesting group of folks that would <laughs> yep. always attend his matches at the Cow Palace, follow him to Sacramento for the TV tapings. And one day after the TV tapings, he's approached by the group, which happened to include some, include some young, attractive females. And they offered to take him out to dinner at a nearby steakhouse. And what wrestler is going to turn down a free steak dinner with young, attractive females? Uh, so he goes and they tell him, you know, someone they know someone that wants to meet him. This person could financially enrich him, yada, yada, yada. Um, they probably didn't say yada, yada, yada. <laughs> um, Frankie was, of course, interested in making more money, but also thought it was kind of weird. Um, both parties go their ways. And fast forward a couple weeks, Mephisto is involved in a particularly heated bout at the Cow Palace that erupted into, you know, a near riot situation. After the match, Frankie's trying to leave the arena through the back door. There's a huge mob of fans waiting for him. Uh, the door to the arena is locked behind him. So he's trapped. Out of nowhere, a big black stretch limo pulls up. Frankie recognizes one of the girls from the steak dinner and she sticks her head out and waves Frankie over. He gets in and the group asks Frankie if he'd like to to meet the person they were talking up when they had their their steak dinner, you know, not wanting to to be rude. Frankie says yes. Limo, you know, takes him takes him to a big black house on a hill in the Richmond district in San Francisco. Uh, They bring Frankie in. Uh, and introduce him to a tall guy, a shaved head goatee, who was Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. Um, so the, the black pope, not Elijah Burke, says he's been watching Mephisto on TV and he was impressed with him and his charisma and thinks they can make some money together. Wow. Uh, Mephisto is the name of a demon and a lot of, you know, 
Mephisto's promos had sort of like a mystical edge to them, you know, and he would throw up like the devil horn horn gesture, you know, like Dio, yeah, but, which was something he got from Anton uh, Ripper Leone, like the old Italian thing, the Maloics or whatever it is. But LeVay interpreted all this as Mephisto being a full fledged uh, <laughs> occultist. Yeah. You know? So Frankie politely declines the offer and gets the gets the gets the heck gets out of the there. heck out of there. Yes. <laughs> but 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 later described the event as psychologically eerie. So that was a interesting little when Frankie hump. Kane met Anton Levey. Yeah, so it's like you get six degrees from like Charles Manson to Bill Watts with these people. You know, it's <laughs> right, really, it's really wild. You know? Uh, so I'm going to name three things I learned this month. And the reason why I'm doing it is because all of these things were, uh, brought to my attention by, uh, our listeners or, or our followers. Uh, and one of the important things of charting the territories is that we're always learning things. We're always filling in the blanks or learning new info and at times being corrected uh, on info we, we gave previously. So I want to not only discuss those things, but also credit those who brought it to my attention. So the first thing uh, came from our good friend Sparks, uh, Sparks, uh, Sparks Third Coast on X. Um, over a year ago, we talked about the uh, the Superdome show in uh, Christmas Day, nineteen seventy eight, where Ray Candy was reported to have lost the North American title to Ernie Ladd by forfeit, and I actually got in touch with someone who 50 years after the fact had said they were at that show and they had believed that Candy no-showed. As it turns out, that's not the case. And we actually have photographic evidence that that wasn't the case. So in a program for a later, uh, uh, that came a few months after, there was a recap of the Christmas Day Superdome card. And it said that in the aftermath of a... uh, a match with Ron Bass against, I forget who, um, Ernie Ladd did a run-in and uh, Ladd and Bass double-teamed the babyface and Ray Candy came out to make the save, but ended up uh, getting double-teamed by the heels and was injured so severely that uh, he couldn't um, compete uh, for in his match against Ladd later that night and had oh. to forfeit the match on the title. Oh, well, thank you, Sparks. Yeah, so a, a good correction to something we had mentioned on the podcast well over a year ago. And I know Sparks, and I think you know this too, John, uh, Sparks is trying to collect all the programs from all the Superdome shows. Yeah. And, and so I guess this was a recent acquisition of his that uh, was able to get us the truth yes, behind it, that it is new, change. And his new scanner too. Yes, and he, yes, and he's very excited <laughs> about that. He got a scanner, scanner. Um, yes. for the holidays. So the second one, and this is one of those things I'm a hun- I'm not quite a hundred percent sure of, but we're about ninety-five, maybe even more like <clears throat> maybe even more like ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent sure. Um, but this comes from Chris Knights. Um, and in the fall of nineteen seventy-one, a wrestler by the name of Bull Marcus worked in Florida, mostly in the mid-cards for about two and a half months. Previously, uh the identity of this Bull Marcus, and if he was a wrestler known under better known under a different name. Had not been known. But thanks to the detective work of Chris, we're just about positive that Bull Marcus was El Gran Marcus, who yeah. uh, mostly wrestled in Mexico, but in 1971 worked in California. And then right at the time he left California, Bull Marcus shows up in Florida. I reached out to a couple of uh, Lucha experts and they confirmed that at this time, Marcus was not wrestling in Mexico. I've got a bad picture of Bull Marcus from a Florida (laughs) program and it 
kind of sort of looks like a picture I have of uh, an unmasked Marcus from several years later. So mm-hmm. we're just about positive that uh, Bull Marcus was El Gran Marcus. Ooh. And then the third thing I learned, and I alluded to the, to this earlier, about a market in uh, Northern California that we didn't have any records of house shows for. Thanks to the research of listener slash follower David Taub, I learned that Roy Shire did run Fresno regularly in the early 1970s. And while we don't have any house show lineups, there was a little mention in the newspaper in Fresno of when the next house show was. Mm. So they ran Fresno 16 times in 1971 every few weeks, which is the frequency they ran most of their markets. They ran Modesto weekly. I think they ran San Jose more like every second week, but San Francisco, Reno, and uh, Las Vegas were generally run every few weeks. And now Mm. we know that Fresno was run at that same frequency. Interesting. That does it for this month. We are going to wrap things up. Um, Don't forget the uh, Charting the Territories Wrestling Almanacs are available worldwide on Amazon or at chartingtheterritories.com. I also recently uh, penned a guest column for Slam Wrestling, talking not just about the books, but about the process involved in writing these books and how each book, uh, to me, is better than the previous one because I take uh, feedback from uh, customers into uh, into consideration when come, when formatting the, uh, the future books. So if you want to check that out, go check out Slam Wrestling. Dot com. You can follow me on X slash Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. And also uh, a lot of the things we talked about on this episode, you can find very easily on X by searching for the hashtag CTTJAN24. I also want to mention uh, this month's challenger, Chris Zellner, can be found on X at Chris Zellner, K R I S. Z-E-L-L-N-E-R. And of course, his uh, renowned Between the Sheets podcast is at B-T Sheets, P-O-D. John? Oh, yes. You can follow me, if you like, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Follow me on X over there. And definitely follow Zellner and uh, the Between the Sheets. That's a fantastic show. Uh, if you, if that's my, my go-to travel show is between the sheets. Cause you just want to, cause they, they go deep, baby. They go real they deep. So they, you get, need, they like, get in those sheets. They do get all up in them sheets. <laughs> uh, so shout out to, to Chris Delner for a, obviously a, a, the most worthy of challengers. And I, I almost feel I should apo- like apologize for winning for some reason. I don't know. No. But yeah, there's a good, there's a good, there's, there's a good, <laughs> that was a good one there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the Charting the Territories podcast comes out on the second Thursday of the month. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. John, you defeated Chris Zellner, which means I got to find somebody even tougher Jeez. for you next month. So uh, oh, I hope... I hope that stack of books that you're that you have bought but haven't read yet, you might want to start working through those and bone up on your knowledge. Yeah, as soon as we disconnect from this call, I'm gonna start reading. Yeah. All right. We will see everybody. Thanks for listening. We will see you all next month. See you next month.